Stage number two, you don't believe in Santa Claus. Stage number three, you are Santa Claus. Stage number four, you look like Santa Claus. And that's where I'm at, except he had a lot more hair. You might be asking what this has to do with this morning's teaching, and the answer is absolutely nothing. So this morning we continue our series on the songs of Christmas from the Bible. And instead of turning to a New Testament story, we're going to consider a prophecy about Jesus written in the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful books in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. And the song that we will learn from today was written 700 years before Jesus was born. But before we get to Isaiah's actual song about Jesus, we must first understand the audience to whom he wrote and what their circumstances were. God's people in that day, the people of Israel, were in a lot of trouble. The problem was they didn't know it. So let's begin now. Let's jump into it by talking about setting the stage, Israel's problem and our problem too. As I just mentioned, God's people in the Old Testament were in big trouble at the time that Isaiah wrote this song about Jesus that we're going to consider this morning. Again, that was seven centuries before the birth of Christ. And here's the historical context. King Solomon came into power, took over from his father, King David, about the year 970 B.C., and he reigned for 40 years. Now, most of his kingship was lived by this man who's a really godly man. In fact, we all know him to be the wisest man who ever lived, and God blessed his life in amazing ways. And as God blessed him and as God blessed the people of Israel, the glory of God was on display in ways that the people of Israel had never seen before, and in fact, in in ways that the world had never seen before. It was just an amazing time when God had his hand on his people in powerful ways, to such an extent that the people from all the nations around streamed to Jerusalem to look at the glory and the splendor of Yahweh, Israel's God. But it began to get to Solomon's head. He began to think it was about him and not about the God who had given him all that wisdom and had, who had blessed him so much. And in the process of that happening, uh, Solomon's focus went from the God who blessed to the blessings of God. And then he began to collect all sorts of things. First of all, he collected gold and silver, billions and billions of dollars worth. He was the wealthiest man who's ever lived and probably the wealthiest man who ever will live. He made the Donald look like a tramp. (laughs) The second thing he collected was women, 300 wives and 700 concubines or sex slaves, a 1,000 women in his harem. Finally, he collected horses, the best of the world at that time. They came from Egypt. He had thousands and thousands of them, and it was all about status and preparation for warfare. Now, interestingly enough, if you look in Deuteronomy 17, these were the three things that God forbade Solomon or any one of his kings to amass or collect. Why? Because God knew that these three things, money, sex, and power, would lead kings like Solomon astray, and times haven't changed much. Nevertheless, that's exactly what Solomon did. And there were two results from that. First of all, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, became the greatest fool on earth. And the second thing that happened, 
was that Solomon's waywardness paved the way for God's people, Israel, to go through a very painful and ugly split from which Israel never recovered. When Solomon died, he appointed his son Rehoboam to become king. However, another man named Jeroboam led a rebellion against Solomon's son. So the result in 930 BC was that Jeroboam led a revolt, and he was the one who led the ten northern tribes, which the Bible calls Israel. Rehoboam led the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they became Judah. Now, Judah, those two tribes, ended up being faithful some of the times and really unfaithful some of the time to God. But the northern tribes, led by Jeroboam, were people who were wholly disobedient and rebellious toward God. And these are the two groups to whom Isaiah writes. And so for the next 200 years, in between the end of Solomon's reign and the time that Isaiah is writing, we see that over and over again, God commands his people to repent. God invites and pleads with his people to come back to him. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to his people, to try to draw them back, to try to woo them in. But instead, their sin became worse and worse. More idolatry, more rebellion, gross and vile sin. And finally, around 720 B.C., God said, I have had enough with Israel, the northern ten tribes. He sent one of the most awful and brutal peoples and armies on earth to come and take them into captivity, and these were called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were God's instrument of judgment. They would go to the kings of Israel, the northern ten tribes. They gouged their eyes out. They skinned them alive, and they led the people of Israel off into captivity and slavery with hooks in their lips. God was trying to get their attention, but they still wouldn't pay attention. So that's the world, and these are the people to whom Isaiah was writing his song of Christmas. And this is what he said about them in Isaiah 8, verses 21 and 22, which are the last two verses before Isaiah's song about Jesus. This is what he said about them. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their God and their king. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. They look up and they curse God. God, it's all your fault that we're in this condition. They look down and all they see around them is the deep darkness and the deep doo-doo that they're in. Did you catch those attitudes and actions? It was their disobedience. It was their sin that got them into such a desperate condition. Over and over again, God pleads with them to repent. But not only do they not listen to him, they become more and more rebellious. And then what do they do? Being taken off as captives with hooks in their lips, they become enraged at God. They shake their fists at heaven and they curse him blaming him for the mess they themselves created. Somehow a huge disconnect had taken place. They were God's people, but God wasn't real to them. They wanted God's blessings and protection, but not on God's terms. They wanted it on their terms. And when all the bad things that God had told them through the prophets would happen to them actually took place, they cursed God and shook their fists at him.
Now, before we say that could never happen again, or that doesn't happen in our lives, let me point out a couple of things. Have you ever noticed that when really bad stuff happens, kind of in a global sense, earthquakes, wars, people dying, school shootings, that kind of things, or, or, or when the little things in our lives happen, a car breaks down or some, some kind of disappointment comes into us, have you ever noticed that when bad things happen, that God is usually the one who gets blamed? Conversely, that when good things happen, God never seems to get the credit? How do we know that? Well, we say, how could a loving God do fill in the blank? How could a loving God allow this tragedy or this disaster to happen? Or we might say as Christians, God, how, how did you allow this painful thing to come into my life? And so before we pass judgment on the northern tribes of Israel and say, oh, this, there's this huge disconnect for most of us, including me, there are big disconnects in our relationship with God with the everyday mundane things of life, the, the joys and the disappointments. A few weeks ago, uh, Peggy and I were driving in another state, and um, uh, we had rented a car. And I, I, let me ask, how many of you love those red light cameras or speeding cameras? Just raise your hand. Okay. Oh, great. One hand. All right. He, he works for the revenue office of... <laughs> We're driving out in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi on a two-lane road. And because I hate speeding cameras and red light cameras, I'm driving the speed limit. Pretty soon, as you can imagine, there's a pile of trucks and there's a big 18-wheeler that's like about six inches from my bumper and trying to get me to go faster. So I speed up and then we get into this little section out in the middle of Mississippi on this two-lane road. And now I'm going over 60. And wouldn't you know it, out in the middle of nowhere, there's a speeding camera. And I go by that thing, and I look at Peggy, and I tend to be kind of a, half, half, a glass, half-empty kind of person. And so I thought, oh, golly, here is this Hick County with a Hick Sheriff. And they, they got my rental car license plate number, and I'm, I'm going to get nailed. And it's not going to be a $150 ticket. It's going to be 300 or 400 or 500 because they know that I'll never come back to this Hick County in, in Mississippi and defend myself. It ruined that day, and it ruined the next day. And I'm going through this stuff, and I fret over money stuff. That's something that's happened in my family for generations. My mom and dad taught me really well. I seem to have perfected it somehow. And it just ruined my day. And it ruined Peggy's day. And she said, it's going to be okay. She tried all the things that she normally does to try and encourage me. And finally, I just said, you know, I just need to get time with God. I took it to God, and God said, Phil, who put that camera there? Who's in charge of your life? Who's in charge of your finance? Would you let it go? Would you stop this pattern of sinful fretting in your life? Let me change you. There is a disconnect in my life. We all have those disconnects. It's manifested through fretting and anxiety. It's manifested through anger and control. It's manifested through all sorts of surprises that come into our lives, and our negative emotional responses show that there's a disconnect. And I'm sharing this with you this morning so that you'll know that people who stand up here and teach, pastors, missionaries, whoever they might be, they're real people, just like you. 
There's a million things that can come into our lives, and this recognition of God's presence in all those details just doesn't take place. It's something we commonly face. So we think, how do I go about fixing this? But I'd like to share with you a better question. When we're like this, what does God do for us? And that finally sets the stage for the beginning of Isaiah's Christmas song. So let's take a look at it now. Our second idea this morning is, is that the song that Isaiah gives us is a song that gives us a promise of change. We see this in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, God had every right to cut himself off permanently from these people of his who are called by his name through all of their rebellion for more than 200 years. And when we act like them, it would be total, totally understandable for God to do the same to us. But in spite of our self-centeredness, our resistance, our stubbornness, our disconnectedness from God, even if it is for years and years, if you don't know Christ and you're permanently disconnected, it applies to you. If you do know Jesus and you're disconnected in your life from the realities of God's ever-present love and, and power in your life, this is what God does. He comes after us. He promises to make things right. He seeks us out. He woos us like a lover. And God never quits on us. His love is relentless because God himself is relentless. And Isaiah knew this, and he was captivated by this passionate, persistent God. And that's why he wrote this song. Read along with me now in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and you'll see it for yourself. Isaiah writes this beginning of his beginning of this beautiful song about Jesus. He says, nevertheless, now he's looking back to the stuff he just said about how he was cut off from his people and how he was going to judge them and how they had shaken their fists at him. He said, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, it will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You, God, will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Isn't that an amazing set of verses about how amazing God is? Let me just briefly walk through this beautiful love song that Isaiah sings uh, uh, about Jesus and and share some of what it means for disconnected people like Israel and, and like us. Darkness and despair, it won't go on forever. They were in deep darkness, and people here this morning are in circumstances where you are in deep darkness in your life. 
He goes on and he says, Galilee of the Gentiles will lie along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, and it will be filled with glory. Galilee of the Gentiles, first of all, is Gentiles, and Jews hated Gentiles. They thought, how could God ever bless Gentiles? And Galilee was the backcountry, the Hicksville of Israel. And God is saying, no, no, no. That simple, humble place will no longer be humbled. I am going to fill it with glory. And, of course, we know who ministered in Galilee. It was Jesus, the Nazarene. He filled that land with glory like they had never seen before, and he can fill our lives with glory. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And for those who live in deep darkness, a light will shine. Jesus is the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never dwell in darkness again. Do you see this relentlessness of God? He's saying, you are in such deep trouble. You are real jerks. You have been unfaithful to me, but I'm going to change it. He goes on. He says, the people will rejoice. Then he says, they will rejoice as people rejoice when harvest, uh, when people are, 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 are in the midst of the harvest. We lived in Ethiopia in a village. There was no greater time of year than the harvest time because that's when everyone collected money from their crops. They danced, they sang, they drank, they partied. And Jesus brings the party to us. He brings joy into our lives. He dispels the darkness and he brings the joy in. And then he finishes up by saying, you'll break the yoke of slavery. You'll lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You'll break the oppressor's rod. However you might be enslaved, however you might be in bondage in your life, and you know what that bondage is. God says, I don't care if you're disconnected from me. I am going to come to you and I'm going to break all the things that bind you up and tie you up and I'm going to make you free. That's a song worth singing about. Let me sum up those five verses with one more verse that is a, one of my favorites in life. It's Hebrews 13.5. The writer to the Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And now look at this part. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake or turn my back on you. That's the message of Emmanuel. God with us. Isaiah writes about it two chapters before in Isaiah 7 to say this is who Jesus is going to be. But when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, the English cannot capture what was written in the language of the New Testament. Literally, it goes something like this. God says, never, no, not ever will I leave you. That's a double negative. And then he comes up with a triple one about forsaking us. He says, and never, no, not ever, never, ever will I turn my back on you. Do you get the message? God will not stop coming after us no matter how bad or unfaithful or disobedient or broken we are. That's why Isaiah is singing. That's why he's talking, giving us this love song about Jesus because he's the only one that can do that. He's the only one who's faithful enough. I've seen it happen in my life over and over and over again. It brings me to tears when I really sit down and think about it. Because God doesn't stop loving. God doesn't stop seeking. Jesus never stops saving us, whether you know him or not. That's beauty. 
That's music. That's life transforming. But believe it or not, if that isn't enough, Isaiah isn't done with this song. In fact, he's just about to get to the very best part. And here it is in verses 6 and 7. And with this, we'll finish. A song that gives us God's very best. So finally, we reach the high point of Isaiah's song. And in verses 1 through 5, he tells us that he's going to make everything new. He tells us that he'll never quit. He tells us that things are going to get better. He shows us that his love is unconditional and that his commitment to us never stops. So now in verses 6 and 7, he tells us just how this will happen. And more important, that the ultimate expression of his love and commitment isn't a thing. It's a person. You see, the song is about Jesus. And rather than just telling us a thing or two about him, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah gives us five names for Jesus that reveal his beauty and his splendor and his greatness. Now, in the past couple of years, both of our sons were married. And uh, they, they bought really nice rings for their wives. And so when they showed us those rings, we said, come over here, let's just see how, how special it is. We put it under a bright light, and then we said, now just rotate that thing around. You ever done that with a really precious gem? It just, it starts casting light everywhere. Every which way you turn it and rotate it, it's stunning. And in the same way, when we consider these five names of Jesus, as we rotate this diamond of God, so to speak, we're going to see a beauty and a dazzle that's breathtaking. So as we finish now, let me encourage you just to do one thing. Just take one or two of these names and let it sink into your life as it applies to you rather than trying to capture all five. But let's go through the five now. Uh, and, And we read this in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The passionate zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. We see his commitment to us again in that last statement. Let's go through these five names together. First of all, wonderful. Wonderful. The most overused word, I think, in the English language today is awesome. Oh, dude, that's so awesome. That's really awesome, guy. All the stuff that we say is awesome. Some of it may be awesome, but so much of it isn't. It's just kind of become a trite word that we use. But this name for Jesus isn't trite at all. Of Jesus, it's said over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus performed many signs and wonders. The signs were the miracles he did. The wonders were the responses that people had when they saw him do what he did. Just think back to different statements 
in the Gospels that people had when they saw the awesomeness of Jesus, the wonderfulness of Jesus, when he calmed the storm with a word. The disciples looked at each other and said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He healed people who had been blind for 30, 40 years. He cast demons out of people. His teaching changed and transformed lives. They said, we've never heard anyone teach like this before. All this points to Jesus being wonderful because he is a miracle-working God. What miracle do you need in your life today? What miracle are you looking for? Well, this one who's called wonderful can work a miracle in you and in those around you. If you'll just listen and seek and connect. Secondly, he's called counselor. Have you ever had a good counselor? Whether it was a defense attorney who was a counselor, or whether it was someone who engaged in psychotherapy with you to deal with issues in your life that you couldn't help yourself with? Well, Peggy and I have. And we'll always be grateful for those two men who a number of years ago helped us walk through some issues in our lives where we were stuck, where we were broken, and we needed help. Well, Jesus tells us in John 14 through 16 about the most amazing counselor you could ever imagine. He's called the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, this counselor will live within you and he will dwell with you forever. You have the perfect and eternally abiding best psychotherapist who lives in your heart. Jesus calls him the paraclete. That is, one who's called to be alongside of us for all of the issues in our lives. He speaks to us in truth. He's the only reliable truth that we really have. He guides us into all truth. He teaches us. He convicts us. He transforms us. And Jesus, who's also called the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit, they're one. You have this amazing counselor who lives in you, and I do too. And that, that, that's, that just blows me away. Third, he's called Mighty God. Let's just focus on one aspect of this. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say that this Word, who's Jesus, made everything that you can see and cannot see. Now think about those who are inventors. They say, look at my beautiful creation. That's not a creation. They happened to pull together things that were already present around them, and they made something out of it. Ingenious may be create or not. When God created the world, he made everything out of nothing with a single word. He spoke it into existence. There's a statement about Jesus in the Christmas narratives that says, for nothing is impossible with God. If this creator God can make everything out of nothing with a word, then nothing in our lives is impossible because he is God Almighty. Jesus is the God, he is the Lord of heaven's armies, and nothing is too big for him to do. And you, you, you might have something that seems to you to be impossible, but it's not because Jesus is Almighty God. That's why Isaiah is singing. Fourth, everlasting Father. This one makes us uncomfortable because most of us have not had really great relationships with our fathers. 
through absent fathers, through abusive fathers, through fathers who did their best, but it wasn't very good, we have what's called the father wound. And we try to take this open wound in our hearts given to us by our dads, and we try to fill it with all sorts of things that will try to give our life meaning in and fill that gap and void. But there's only one person who can do that, and that is Father Forever. Jesus, when he came to planet Earth, came to bring us into a relationship with a heavenly Father who's called Abba. He's Daddy. And he longs to fill that gap in your life and mine. And because Jesus came, you have a relationship with the Father, if indeed you know Christ. And this Father wants to speak three simple messages into each one of our hearts. The first one is, I love you, unconditionally. The second one is, I'm proud of you. The third one is, you are good. That's what Jesus does for us by bringing us into a relationship with the Father. And finally, the last name, Prince of Peace. Let's just learn about what this Prince of Peace has done for us from one last verse, Colossians 1.19 through 20. How did we get the peace that we have in Christ from the Prince of Peace? And here's what Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, how? Making peace by the blood of his cross. That's real peace. It's not just a stoppage of warfare. It's security. It's an at-homeness with God. And it's all because of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know this wonderful counselor, everlasting father, almighty God and prince of peace, he's offering you a relationship with you today. He wants to put this song that Isaiah wrote in your heart. And if you do know Christ and there's a disconnect, he wants to transform your life as well through this one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful, amazing love song spoken to people who are in a desperate condition. And Father, as we are honest with ourselves, we see disconnects in our lives probably in so many different ways. Would you keep on coming after us as you promise? Would you keep on revealing yourself to us? Father, if, if, if there are people here who don't know Jesus, and, and, and if that's you, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I want you. I want you to be my Prince of Peace. Come into my life. Make me new. Transform me. And Father, in all of our lives, whether we know you or not, keep on being who you are and let us count on your faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for being our wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We give you thanks in your great name. Amen.